come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 40 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here. Since this is episode number 40, what I decided to do is that I'm going to give my list of the top films of 1940. Now, I know I had originally said that there was a movie from 1950, but it turns out that movie wasn't actually from that year. There was an error on Letterboxd. I think I delve a little bit more into it later on this episode. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is I will list off some of the missing films from 1950. So that will be something that is a part of that. And then the films that are on the actual list are all from the year of 1940. So you have something to look forward to there. And actually what I'm kind of curious is... If any of the ones you've seen or anything like that, if you could reach out to me, that would be great. I will have more about that in the outro for this episode. And then on top of that, I decided to go ahead and include some mini reviews of films that I've watched this week of The Gift, Into the Dark, My Valentine, Identity, The Twilight Saga of New Moon, as well as Eclipse. Now, what I'm going to go ahead and do is it's been kind of a hectic weekend, so I'm trying to compile everything here to get this episode out. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to a musical break before I get into those mini reviews. And I hope you enjoy coming on this little journey with me. Yeah. 
mini review for this week it is going to be the gift from 2000 this is directed by sam raimi it is co-written between billy bob thornton and tom epperson this stars kate blanchett katie holmes and keanu reeves this is a drama fantasy horror mystery film from the united states this is currently sitting on a 6.6 on imdb and a 3.1 on letterboxd with the synopsis being a fortune teller with extrasensory perception is asked to help find a young woman who has mysteriously disappeared. Now this is a movie that I'm pretty shocked that I didn't really know more about. I've seen the images of Katie Holmes topless from that scene here in this movie. Mostly when I was really, you know, getting into peak adolescence with the internet and her, you know, being Katie Holmes. But I didn't actually realize that that's, this was the movie that I'd seen them from. And I'm also a Sam Raimi fan who is the director as I said. For whatever reason though this movie avoided me and I did hear a podcast talk about this movie before they showed a film at the Gateway Film Center and it intrigued me but it wasn't until the podcast Under the Stairs' Summer Challenge series for the 2000s that I finally gave it a go. Now just to expand on this just a little bit here we have Annie Wilson who is Kate Blanchett. She's a widowed mother to three boys and her husband died tragically in a explosion or a fire or something like that at work and at the moment she's living off social security which we learn later on as well as donations for reading people's fortunes with her special cards now she does have a client of valerie barksdale who is portrayed by hillary swank we see that someone is beating her up and we learn it's her husband donnie who later on we'll learn is keanu reeves but despite the warnings to get away from him she just can't seem to leave and the crux of this whole movie is that Jessica King, who is Katie Holmes, disappears. Her fiance, Wayne Collins, who is Greg Kinnear, comes to her along with Jessica's father of Kenneth, who is Chelsea Ross, and then the sheriff, Pearl Johnson, who is J.K. Simmons. They are at the dead end with all their leads, so they ask her to do a reading, and she starts to have images, and it ends up at first pointing to Donnie, but this is much darker than we originally believe as more and more clues come to the light. Now, this is interesting that in the 1990s, we got a lot of those murder mystery type films like Silence of the Lambs and 
like along came a spider and kissed the girls and stuff like that. So it's interesting that here in the 2000s, Sam Raimi decided to do a murder mystery type film that has a dark and supernatural twist to it. I think it's interesting though is that he does a great job at revealing the depths of these characters. Now, first we have Annie here who is just trying to make ends meet and she is being branded as a witch, you know, worshiping Satan and even physically threatened from Donnie for what she's doing. But she's really just a tragic character and I think Blanchette does an amazing job here as portraying this character as I've never seen her in a bad role. She's like I said just really trying to make ends meet with her meager life and trying to raise her children alone and doing the best that she can. But what I find interesting here is the character of Donnie being portrayed by Reeves. Now he's an actor that I'm not always the biggest fan of as he can be hit or miss with some of his roles. What I think here is that he does well in portraying this insecure redneck, but it almost feels like he's taking the character of John Wick, but just giving him no morals and making him a bully. And I was quite impressed with him as the villain in this movie, because that's not a role you really see him in all that often. From here though, I just like the depth of the story is we also get to meet a character named Buddy, who just has a tragic backstory. And Annie's really the only one who is, you know, have befriended him, but she really can't give him the attention that he needs because he really does need treatment for the trauma that he's been endured as a child and has never really come to face to face with it. Wayne seems like a good guy. He's engaged with the most beautiful woman in town with Jessica. She's just a little bit too wild for him. And I think a lot of this is growing up with money that she is one of those... She portrays this facade of being a good person and a good girl, but then we see that there's been a lot of things going on behind the scenes and she's just really wild by nature. Now this movie does have some dream sequences, but I'm kind of forgiving here. Annie has visions which help her to figure things out for her, you know, kind of job that she does. But I like that this movie blurs the lines is there's times where we don't necessarily know we're in a dream sequence and it turns out to be one, or she's actually just having visions and I think that really does well in setting the stage for some things later on. I think the acting is just great across the board. I mean, I've already talked about Giovanni Rabisi, Katie Holmes I thought was pretty good in here. Greg Kinnear was solid. I've already talked about Kate Blanchett as well as Keanu Reeves. But we also, like I said, have Hilary Swank, Gary Cole, J.K. Simmons. We also get some minor bit parts from Michael Jeter, Kim Dickens, Chelsea Ross, and Rosemary Harris. And then the last thing I just kind of wanted to go over for this would be the effects. I like that they do well in not giving their hand too early that we're in dream sequences with the fuzzy sort of focus on everything. So that really does help for it blurs that and it doesn't make me hate the dream sequences in this movie and I think it actually kind of works. The makeup they did for Jessica when she is dead was solid. It looked pretty creepy. I thought the cinematography was solid and I had no issues there. I just thought this was an interesting little film that, you know, like I was saying, plays with the supernatural as well as being a murder mystery. I thought it was pretty good. I actually kind of want to see this again now that I know how everything plays out just to see if I might have, you know, missed anything as we're going, but I came in with an 8 out of 10 on this movie. And for my second review is Into the Dark, My Valentine. This is written and directed by Maggie Levin. This stars Britt Barron, Benedict Samuel, and Anna Lord. This is a horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.4 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd with the synopsis being a pop singer's songs and artistic identity have been stolen by her ex-boyfriend slash manager and shamelessly pasted onto his new girlfriend slash protege. They end up getting locked together in a small concert venue to sort it out. Now I decided to check this movie out as I wanted a 2020 horror film to keep up with my pace for the year. 
but one that I could do a mini review here on the podcast for, just so I could keep up, you know, with my pace for, you know, trying to get up to that 100 total. Since this was the oldest of the Into the Dark episodes on Hulu that I hadn't seen from this year, I decided to give it a go and came in pretty blind. Now, just to give it a little bit more information, is that we start this off with Valentine, who is barren. She's in a hoodie, and she's listening to a podcast on how to fix yourself after being in a codependent-slash-abusive relationship. Now, she stops at a poster for a pop star named Treasure, with two Zs, played by Lore. At first, I thought this was the same person, but it is at that point that Valentine grabs a piece of glass and attacks the poster. Now, with a bloody hand, she sits on the ground. Now, what we end up realizing is that the look and songs this treasure is singing and playing and even the look is stolen from valentine and she used to date royal and he would gaslight her as well as physically abuse her until she had finally had to get away to make things worse her songs in his name and then molded treasure to look just like her now valentine decided to return to the music scene and has been fighting with a message board fan club called the treasury now, and they support this other artist of Treasure, of course. It is at the show that she comes back that a trio of them of Trevor, who is Alan Chow, Allison, who is Ali Mackey, and Dave, who is Ruben Veneer, they run that message board and they're convinced that she stole Treasure's material. Now, what ends up happening though is Royal shows up, pays the bartender to close down early so he can talk with Valentine, and then he gets the fan club to watch the door, and then Treasure eventually comes into the building as well. While locked in, we learn the truth of what's really happened and who came up and who is actually behind all the music. We get to see that Royal is a worm, but when he is pushed to the brink, he'll do some unthinkable things to continue his success, even asking Valentine to come back to him. Now, I'll admit, I've not seen all these Into the Dark episodes, and I've been pretty entertained from the ones that I have seen, and still knowing that there are some ones that have been, you know, picked apart pretty bad that I've listened to on podcast. This isn't the best one that I've seen, and technically I think it has the lowest rating of all the ones, but I still think it's an entertaining movie. Now, this is the February episode, so this was Valentine's Day is obviously the go-to holiday. It is interesting that to make the main character's name be Valentine, and not actually using the holiday itself, but it does focus on relationships, which I do think is kind of a cool thing. Now, I'll admit, until I got into listening to podcasts, I wasn't really socially aware of what gaslighting was officially. I had heard, you know, of things being similarly done from people that I have known and I've actually had seen the old movie with that title, but it still didn't click until recently. And I bring this up because Royal is a master manipulator. And I think what he has done to Valentine until she's had enough. Now, he reveals to her the truth, and I like that we explore this idea in the movie. I feel horrible for Valentine and what she's dealing with. I also feel for Treasure as she's pressured into becoming Valentine in this master plot. But the interesting thing, though, is that Treasure really isn't that great of a person in general either. The movie does well in fully putting us into Valentine's camp, though, and as I said, it is heartbreaking to see the toll Royal has done on her to the point where she's given up. Some people I respect on social media have brought this up about the horror community, and we really did get to see that in some of these group pages just recently. I'm all for social justice and doing the right thing, but there has to be a point where you stop yourself and not going on the offensive, and that is what we're getting to see here with the Treasury people, as they've been duped, and they're actually in the wrong, and I love seeing how misguided they are. Now, not everything really has worked for me in this movie. I like what Royal's character does, but I don't feel like he would necessarily go as far as he does in the movie. And all the psychological damage that he's done, I think that's fitting, and I almost wish they would have stuck to that more, which I did find from somebody on Twitter that I'm friends with, uh, Mikhail. 
that the true story is more along that lines where he didn't actually necessarily do anything as violent in this movie. He did beat the women that he was with, which is, I mean, horrible, and I'm not trying to downplay that at all. I think it would have been better, though, if he would have kind of used his manipulation abilities to other things that happened than what we got. I would say the acting is fine across the board, and that includes Samuel as well. I also thought Baron was quite attractive, and I like that we get to see her at her lowest point, and then finding the strength to overcome everything, which I thought was a really good job there. Uh, Laura is interesting in her duality to Valentine. I like the character that we get from her in the end. I thought the other rest of the people just kind of rounded this out for what was needed. But I will say that there is two characters of another band in this movie that I don't necessarily think we needed because it feels like it was just padding for time and it didn't really add anything to the thing except some body count near the end as well. Thought the effects were pretty good. The blood that we got looked fine. I did have an issue with some of the effects they used around some characters at different times. It just felt out of place and felt a little bit just weird. The music I thought was good. Not really songs that I would listen to on the regular, but I do think it was kind of fitting for the movie. And I mean, I'm not going to lie. They were interesting sounding enough where I would probably put them on at different times if I thought about it when I'm into wanting that type of music to be playing. So the social commentary works here, but the movie's a little bit boring and just kind of falls a little bit flat and there's some cheesy gimmicks that they use but i will say like the blood was good the soundtrack i dug for the most part and i had to come in with a six out of ten for this movie and then up next i have for you is identity from 2003 this is directed by james mangold it is written by michael cooney it stars john cusack ray liotta and amanda pete this is a mystery thriller from the united states it is currently sitting on a 7.3 on imdb and a 3.3 on letterboxd with the synopsis being stranded at a desolate Nevada motel during a nasty rainstorm, 10 strangers become acquainted with each other when they realize they're being killed off one by one. Now, this is a film that is an interesting one for me. For whatever reason, I didn't see this until an ex who had it on DVD said we needed to watch it. Now, she had a John Cusack fetish, so that is probably why she owned it. But then my second viewing here is with my girlfriend Jamie now, who loves this movie as well, and it is also one that we needed, I needed to revisit for the podcast Under the Stairs' this Summer Challenge series for the 2000s. Now, just a little bit more backstory is that it's interesting is that if you pay attention, this movie gives you all the clues that you need for the reveal, but I'll admit, the first time, I didn't catch on to it. Now, we start this off with a Dr. Malik, who is Alfred Molina, that is listening to some tapes that we get to hear. Now, he's a psychiatrist, and his patient... They've uncovered some new information from past interviews as well as some journal entries that reveal new evidence. So then they are doing a secret hearing that is going to be ahead of his execution that is supposed to be the following day. And this upsets the DA who is Marshall Bell and his assistant DA who is Matt Letcher. And he's mad at him for not letting him know. And there's the meeting here is going to be with the judge that overheard everything as well as this person's defense attorney and they are bringing this person to the hearing as well but a majority of this movie is going to be out in the middle of the desert now we have a few different people that all kind of converge on this motel as the synopsis says we get some people here like george york who is john mcginley we have alice who is layla kenzel we have timmy who is brett lower paris who's amanda pete ed who is john cusack and then we have Carolyn Suzanne, who is Rebecca D. Mornay, as well as Larry, who is John Hawks, Jenny, who is Clea Duval, Lou, who is William Lee Scott, Rhodes, who is Ray Liotta, Robert Maine is Jake Busey. So all these people, like I said, kind of come to this place, and they don't realize it at first. They all have something in common, 
And the more that they learn, the more that this is a creepy situation for them. But then they also start to get picked off one by one. And each time somebody is killed, there is a key from this motel that has a number associated with it. Now, this is kind of also a hard one to talk about without going into spoilers. But what I really like about this, though, is... You can watch it multiple times because each viewing, I feel like, gives you a little bit more information and clues. I remember how this movie ended to an extent, but I didn't remember some of the finer details. It's kind of fun to watch to kind of pick up on some of those things. And everybody seems to have some things that they're hiding. Like, Ed used to be a cop, and he notices things that Rhodes does that doesn't necessarily fit someone in that profession. It could just be him being sloppy from being on the job too like too long as well. Paris has a bunch of money. Larry seems nervous about people going into a certain room. It's just these little things that as things piece together, it kind of makes an interesting little story. Now, it wasn't until after I saw this that I realized that it was an adaptation loosely of Agatha Christie's Ten Little Indians. But we have an interesting kind of take on how this is different there. And this also kind of plays like a Neo Jalo film for me, to be honest. We have so many red herrings and the characters are picked off until we get to the truth. I think this is also aided by a strong cast here. I don't really necessarily care for John Cusack in most things lately, but I thought he was good in this movie. Leota I thought was strong as well. And what really works for me is just his outbursts. Pete is quite attractive. She also works well in this movie as being the third lead. The rest of the cast, though, is just solid, and they all play off each other very well, and there isn't really a bad performance in this movie, to be honest. There's not really a lot in the way of effects for this movie, but I will say the setting of it's interesting being isolated like they are, and then this heavy rainstorm has caused the roads to wash out where there's no way to get away from it, but we also see there's a little bit something more going on to that, and it also has a claustrophobic feel because they can't get out of here, even though there's a little bit of room to kind of move around and everything like that. So with that said though, I really ended up enjoying this movie and I'm glad that I got another chance to check this out. I do think it's really interesting and one that like I said that kind of holds up after multiple viewings. So I came in this time around with a rating of a 9 out of 10. And then up next, Jamie did wrote me into watching The Twilight Saga New Moon. This is from 2009. This is directed by Chris Wentz. It was from a screenplay from Melissa Rosenberg and the novel by Stephanie Meyer. This stars Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, and Taylor Lautner. This is an adventure drama fantasy romance film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 4.7 on IMDb and a 2.2 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, Edward leaves Bella after an attack that nearly claimed her life, and in her depression, she falls into yet another difficult relationship, this time with her close friend, Jacob Black. Now, this is another movie that I saw right after seeing the original one because of my sister. I didn't care for it after that initial viewing, but Jamie wanted to watch them with me since I make her watch uh, a lot of movies that I enjoy. So I felt that it was only a fair, you know, trade-off. Now, this one starts on Bella's 18th birthday with Bella being portrayed again by Kristen Stewart. She was having a nightmare that woke her up about her getting old and Edward not because of, you know, him being a vampire. Her father, Charlie, who is Billy Burke, gives her a present that is from him and her mother, which is a digital camera, and she isn't as appreciative as she should be. Then she goes off to school where she ends up meeting with her friends, and then Edward also shows up, who is Robert Pattinson again. But also before this, she does have an interaction with Jacob Black, who is Lautner, and we get to see that he still does have a crush on her. Now that night, she goes to his place to celebrate with his family, but what ends up happening is she cuts her finger and almost is attacked by Jasper Hale, who is Jackson Rathbone. Now, his family does what they can to prevent him from actually getting to her, but then the family needs to leave because people are starting to notice that they're not aging as well as, you know, Dr. Carlisle, who is 
Peter Fancinelli. So Edward breaks up with Bella. Now this breaks her heart, and then we get a montage of her being in her room and ignoring everything in life and having bad dreams that Charlie doesn't know how to help her. So then from here, she is faced with having to leave to go with her mother from her father, who doesn't really, like I said, know how to help with her. And it forces Bella to reach out to Jessica, who is Anna Kendrick. Now that night, she rides a motorcycle with a random guy, and she sees images of Edward telling her to stop. She now has become an adrenaline junkie as a way to kind of get over her feelings, and this brings her closer to Jacob, who agrees to help her restore a motorcycle. Now, the crux of this movie, though, is Edward had said that when they broke up, that if she tries to hurt herself, he is going to end up killing himself. And a lot of this becomes that he refuses as well to not change her into a vampire. Since Edward has the ability to read minds, he reads his sister, who sees an image of Bella jumping into the water, but she couldn't make out the rest of what happened, so he goes to Italy to go before the Volturi, who are a group of vampires who rule over the rest, and they have to have a just cause for a vampire to be destroyed, and it usually is kind of breaking rules, like revealing themselves or attacking people when they shouldn't be. So then it becomes where she needs to stop him from doing anything because, you know, she is alive at this time. And that's where I'm going to kind of go ahead and leave my recap. I don't necessarily want to go into spoilers. And I think most people listening to this probably don't really care either. So I just kind of want to echo my thoughts. Is I like the idea that the vampires, when they turn, they get some sort of power. And we learned in this one, at least that I think we do, that Jasper has the ability to calm people down. And I also like that we learn as well that Bella has an ability. Now, we did know that Edward has attracted her since she can't, he cannot read her mind. A crux of this movie, though, is the Volteri leader, Aro, who is the great Michael Sheen. He has a similar ability that when he touches someone, he can read every thought they've ever had. He does this to Edward and to Alice, which is cool. But he, however, tries to do this to Bella, and he cannot. And we also get to see another vampire of Jane, who is Dakota Fanning, attempt her ability on her as well. Again, I like the idea of the Volteri. I feel this was borrowed from Anne Rice and her Lestat vampire novels, but I can't say it was stolen. When we get introduced to this group, it does catch my interest. The problem that I have with this movie is I don't feel like there's a major issue in this movie. Jamie explained to me that the encounter with the Volteri are supposed to be, but I just don't feel like the stakes were high enough there. This film does have its normal issues that I had with the original, though, where I think the Edward, the relationship between Bella and Edward isn't healthy. Plus, the way that they portray her is not a standard that we want women to act when someone breaks up with them. It's also problematic that the guys she continues to get mixed up with are not good for her, and this movie seems to present that this is something that should be normal, though. And it's just, I feel like also stating that being depressed just is a, is a good thing when it's something that I've gone through and it's normal, but it's not really something we should be celebrating as a power. I just feel that the writing for this is just a little bit stale, as we do have some good actors here like Stewart and Pattinson, but they just seem flat and just moody for the most part. I thought Burke was fine along with Sheen, Jamie Campbell Bauer is okay, Graham Greene and Fanning. Aside from them and seeing the young Anna Kedrick, Christian Sorantos, Lautner, Green, and Nikki Reed, I just feel that the script is... Like I said, just a bit stiff, and no one's acting really kind of shines through. I do feel like this one had a bigger budget, so the CGI is much better. I'm just not a favorite of movies doing that. There is some green screen that I could tell. I also have some issues. There's werewolves in this one that when they're changing from human to beast with shorts on and then back again into human, their shorts are still intact, which it's a nitpick, but I just think it's something that's dumb, and I think they should have come up with a better idea. I still hate the vampire's skin glowing like diamonds. This is one that I'm just saying that I'm willing to watch and everything because Jamie wants me to. I just don't feel like they're very good. I've kind of went through everything that I had with it. 
I'm glad that people started reading again when these books were coming out. At least, you know, a younger age group was reading, but it's still just not very good in my opinion. Well, I will say though, I did like this one a little bit better than the previous at least. So I had to come in here with a 5 out of 10 on this movie. And for the last movie of this week as a mini review is going to be The Twilight Saga Eclipse. This came out in 2010. This was directed by David Slade. The screenplay was written by Melissa Rosenberg, and it comes from the novel from Stephanie Meyer. It stars Kristen Stewart, Robert Pattinson, and Taylor Lautner. This is an adventure drama fantasy romance film from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 5.0 on IMDb and a 2.3 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being, as a string of mysterious killings grips Seattle, Bella, whose high school graduation is fast approaching, is forced to choose between her love for vampire Edward and her friendship with shape-shifting werewolf Jacob. Now, this was the last of the Twilight Saga that I'd watched back when my sister recommended them when I was in college. She did preface that I was not going to like them, and to be honest, she was right. And I will say that I am... Say that before, you know, getting into my recap of the movie. I can see why these movies have fans. They just aren't for me, and I assume for most horror fans. I did give this a second viewing as part of an agreement with Jamie since I've been making her watch some films that have been pretty terrifying for her. Now the crux of this movie really is that we have a new vampire who is Riley, portrayed by Xavier Samuel. Now as I said, he's a new character to the movie as well and he's been turned by Victoria, who this time around is Bryce Dallas Howard, and she wants him to create an army for her. The reason being is that Alice Cullen, who is Ashley Green, can see her movements. So she's trying to do this in the shadows, and he has connections to Forks, Washington, because that's where he's originally from. Now, Bella, who is Stuart, her father, Charlie, who is portrayed by Billy Burke, isn't too fond of how much time she's spending with Edward, who is Robert Pattinson. Now, he wants her to tone it down a bit and spend some time with her other friends, including Jacob, who is Taylor Lautner. Charlie doesn't realize that his daughter is slated to become a vampire, though. And then Bella does reach out to Jacob, but he's ignoring her, and it's hard to blame him, though, as he's in love with her, and she pretty much has rejected him. Now, the big plot for this movie is that this newborn army that Victoria and Riley are building is what we end up learning is that vampires that drink human blood are stronger than the vegetarians that drink from animals. So it's the new, in the same vein, newborn vampires still have some human blood in them, which makes them stronger. And I have to give a shout out to Jamie for explaining this to me because I was a little bit confused and didn't really understand it. And then to complicate things as well, Jane, who is Dakota Fanning, watches along with three others from the Volturi. Jane has decided that they'll let this army do what they're setting out to, even though they're drawing too much attention for the series of crimes that is happening in Seattle because, you know, they're newborns and they're out of control. Now, she does get into it with Felix, who is Daniel Cudmore, about how to handle this, but she convinces him that she has the full authority to do what she can and they don't need to bring Aro into the decision. And then the whole thing here as well is that as danger nears Forks, Bella has to deal with the issues of Edward and Jacob who are having a masculine competition about who is better for her. Despite their disdain for one another, they must come together to protect her and it won't be easy as well as a new alliance must be made or it could be you know, the end of everything that they know. Now there are some things that I liked about this. Jamie also had to explain some deeper knowledge from the books to expand on what the movie gives us. We get to learn more about Jasper Hale, who was portrayed by Jackson Rathbone, that he was a member of the Confederate Army from Texas. Now, he was lured in by a vampire who turned him, and since he had military knowledge, he would lead her army. Now, we don't really delve too much into why this vampire did that, but I think it's just to gain more territory as she was living in the Wild West at that time. 
aside from that we do get to learn a little bit more about like rosalie's backstory we get to learn a little bit more about edward as well for me this is the more interesting stuff for the movie and they don't get enough of that and it kind of bogs the movie down because they want to focus so much on the relationship between bella edward and jacob and let's be honest here, it's a very toxic one across the board. This one's really bad because we have the two men are competing for her love and they're just being misogynistic and it doesn't seem to really matter what she wants. So they really just have a pissing contest which in the end, if she was smart, she would just shun both of them and I would have applauded her more for it. But then again, Bella is written as a wet blanket who reaches out to for affection from both of them, so she's contributing to the problem, in my opinion, as well. This movie also has an issue where it's building up some interesting stuff, but then the climax we get isn't satisfying for that. As I said previously, you know, on this, is that New Moonhead, where the Volteri is an interesting group for me, and I wanted to get more there, and I thought there'd be a better struggle in that type of situation. We kind of get that same thing here with this vampire army, where it just really wants to talk more about the toxic relationship instead of, you know, kind of something that would be a little bit more entertaining for most fans. Again, the acting isn't really great. Stewart, I know, is a good actress, but she just, I mean, she does well at playing a depressed character, but she's just flat for me. Pattinson is as well. Lautner probably shows the most emotion of anybody in this movie, but he just isn't a great actor in my eyes. He just has a, you know, a physique that they were looking for. thought Burke was solid. I do like that they brought Bryce Dallas Howard in this movie as she's a good actress, but she doesn't really get enough screen time to really do anything it's interesting that samuel is in this movie as the only thing i've ever seen him in aside from this is the loved ones which is a brutal little film where i thought he was better in that movie it's also fun still to see a young anna kendrick and christian sarantos and then we also have some name actors like fanning but no one really stands out the effects do look like they have a much better budget so i don't really have any issues there there is some green screen work that still doesn't look all that good we don't really get anything of the shining vampires in this movie so i can't harp on that I will say this one is more brutal, and I still have some issues, though, with the werewolf transformation. The giant wolves don't look bad, but the logic of having shorts on when they change still bothers me. The cinematography is fine. What I'll kind of add on saying this is that this movie just isn't for me, so that's kind of where my issues stem from it. And like I said, glad that these books got people to read. The movies just aren't very good, in my opinion. I feel like this is very average at a 5 out of 10. Now that's all I have for the mini reviews. What I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get into the 1940s slash 1950s list.
stop rambling, stop your gambling, stop staying out late at night. Go home to your wife and family. Stay there by your fireside bright. Welcome back. Amber, I wanted to start this. We're going to be the missing films that I couldn't find a copy or any way to kind of watch any of them. So what I'm going to end up doing is the first film to talk about is Dr. Lee and the Mummy. Now, I couldn't even find this one on IMDb, so I won't be able to give you any sort of like trivia or anything about this one. But the synopsis is a little bit long, and it's while outside in a hotel garden at night, Miss Tang runs into a vampire. Mr. Lee tries to find out if it's real or not. It may have something to do with the hotel grounds being a former gold mine. After its theatrical release, this is yet to be released again in any format anywhere, and it's believed to be the first film ever to contain the Jingxi, or the Hopping Vampire. Now, I've been introduced a little bit to this through, not a whole lot to be honest, but I have seen this when I saw The Legend of the Seven Golden Vampires, the Shaw Brothers slash hammer film crossover i know they had the vampires they weren't necessarily hopping in that one but they were moving very similar to that and i've also seen i think it's sue hark's vampire hunters which is a kind of a remake of that movie so it'd be kind of interesting to see how these hopping vampires got their you know theatrical film debut type thing where and we kind of see how everything played out there so it's kind of interesting that this movie never got a release or anything like that hence why it is missing and making this little list right here and then to run to the ones from 1950 that were lost, the first one is The Man Without a Face, or El Hombre Sin Rostro. This is a faceless killer who hunts women can only be stopped by a detective with a disturbing past. Now, what is interesting about this one is it has the same plot was developed nine years later by Robert Block in Psycho from 1960. By consequence, El Hombre Sin Rostro anticipates Alfred Hitchcock's film for 10 years. Same thing happened with another uh, Juan Bustillo Oro's film Dos Monjes from 1934. This time, Akira Kurosawa's Rashomon from 1950 used the same plot and the different point of view narrative technique. Now, this one is actually a horror mystery thriller that is from Mexico. I tried my hardest to find a copy of it, but I couldn't find anything anywhere, and I believe that there wasn't really any DVDs or any sort of release for it, so I wasn't able to find it because of those reasons. Then there was The Man with the Giant Hat, or El Sombrerion. Now, this is a horror film from Guatemala. The film dramatizes one of the most famous legends of Guatemala, the tale of El Sombrerion, or the man with the giant hat, who is considered to be the most frightful specter. Now, I actually believe this is one that I was able to find, I think, on like YouTube or something like that, but they didn't have any English subtitles, so I couldn't figure out what the heck was being said. 
or else I would have tried watching this one as, you know, probably the only film from 1950, technically. But then outside of that, this is considered the earliest surviving Guatemalan sound film, and despite critical and popular success, the production cost of this movie led to its production company Guatemala Films to close its door not long after its release. It just sounds interesting because... I'm always up to learn more about other cultures, and I don't know if I've ever seen a film from Guatemala, so it would have been cool to be able to watch this one, you know, for the podcast and everything like that, and just for my own, you know, kind of horror movie knowledge and everything like that. Now, IMDb only has 12 people that have given this a rating, so it is kind of a shame because, like I said, I think I did find it. I just don't know Spanish enough to fully kind of comprehend everything that I would have been getting from the movie, so that is the reason why I haven't been able to watch this one. So that makes the last film from 1950 that I could not find was Kameni Santanas. This is a horror film from the Philippines. With the synopsis being Caberto, who is Rinaldo Dante, an aged El Bellario or folk healer who has a great love for Sin Yang, Leila Morena, a young pretty lass, the daughter of his good friend, fearing that he has no chance at all, he sells his right hand to the devil in exchange of youth, good looks, and wealth. Now, this is based on a serialized comics novel by Pedrito Reyes that was published in the Elang Elang magazine in 1951. Now, what I really find interesting about this is that I've brushed up a little bit on, you know, some more of the Asian horror films, as I'm a big fan of the ones, you know, from like Japan and as well as like South Korea. I've seen, I think, maybe one or two from the Philippines. I think I might be wrong on that. But I just think that it's an interesting another culture, like I was saying, that I've never seen before and would be something I could get a little bit more knowledge on. And on top of that, I wasn't able to find this anywhere. And this would have been fun because this is a black and white film that is in Filipino and Tagalog as the you know languages that the film is spoken in. And another interesting thing is that only six people have rated this on IMDb. It does have a rating of a 7.0, so it's one of those things where I believe you can actually read the comics and everything for it, as I do believe if you look at it, the page for it on the Letterboxd app, there was a like blog spot where you can learn a little bit more. I didn't necessarily want to do that unless I could actually watch it, but it, this is a shame that this is another one that I was unable to watch. All right, and then to get to the actual list for that, now, I ended up realizing today when I was looking at the Letterboxd app that the Fall of the House of Usher, the one that I'd watched that I thought was from 1950, it has been seemed like it was an error and that it was fixed, so it's been moved over to 1946. So all the movies on this list are going to be from 1940 because of that the actual release date was incorrect on there. So it's just one of the ones that I ended up watching and made a featured review for no real reason. But I digress, and what I'm going to go ahead and do is give you the three that don't make the top 10 list. So the first one that is going to be listed here is going to be The Ape. Now, this was the film that was featured on episode number 27 of this podcast. Now, this is that weird one where it stars Boris Karloff, where he is a mad scientist that is trying to help a paralyzed woman. This falls into that weird sort of subgenre that they did for a little bit where they had apes just kind of running amok in different things, where this is one that escaped from a local circus that was in town. Now, I think this has an interesting premise, though, where we have Boris Karloff is trying to discover a way to, like I said, help this woman in a wheelchair who's been paralyzed. Now, I believe that the sort of 
technology he's trying to use at the time and the serum he's trying to create i believe he has to pretty much still like almost like stem cells or steal stuff from people's spine in order to make this concoction but at the time everybody's thinking this ape is still just running amok around town i'm unfortunately going to tell you there's a reason that this movie is coming in at number 13 on this list out of the 13 films that i could actually watch it's just kind of a shame because I feel like there is some chances here to go a little bit deeper into things, but for whatever reason, the movie doesn't really seem to do that, and it just kind of is boring on top of it, and I almost feel like there could have been either reels that were just missing, or they're just still in early cinema where they aren't really necessarily fleshing out their story all that well. Some of the characters, it was kind of hard to tell them apart and everything like that. I mean, outside of that, I don't really recognize many of the other characters in this movie. If you really want to hear a more in-depth review, it was on that past episode. But outside of that, this one just really comes up kind of short for me. And that is why I had to come in with a 4 out of 10 for this movie. And I'm not really sure if I had said what the past one... That was number 14. So actually, number 13 for me is Son of Ngagi. Now, this one, of course, has a lot of historical significance because the original Ngagi, which I also did on this podcast as well in kind of a weird sort of form on that episode, number 35, where this one is the featured one, is that this is featured in the horror noir documentary, you know, the history of black people in horror. Now, this Ngagi, the original, is a very racist film once you get to the end of everything. And some of the things they did is just kind of really horrible thing to kind of do. Now, this is them, you know, 10 years later deciding that they're going to make their own sequel to it with an all-black cast. And I believe this still stands as the first creature feature type movie that is, you know, kind of that sort of thing. Now, I unfortunately hate to say this. The movie is kind of boring, though, where... We have this newlywed couple and they are trying to, you know, make a way for themselves, but the husband's job burns down and then we have this local doctor who really likes the young lady who got married because she was close to her father, but then we see that she's harboring something that she may have brought back with her from Africa on some missionary stuff that she did when it almost seems like the father kind of rejected her to marry, you know, the mother of this woman. The problem that I have with this, again, is that I just don't feel like they flesh things out here, is that this almost kind of seems to be like another mad scientist type movie with something that the Doctor is trying to do, but we never go far enough with it. There's a little bit of slapstick comedy with the cop that we get in the movie. I love that we have, you know, black people in this movie that are in all of the positions of power and everything like that. They got all these great professions, and I even like that the monster makeup that we do is when we realize that there is a you know, son of Ngagi that is in the basement. But the problem that I have with this movie, though, is like I said, they just don't really flesh things out enough. The movie just kind of meanders, and I don't necessarily know what they're trying to go with things there. I feel like just a little bit of kind of fleshing things out, like keep the Doctor along a little bit longer than what we get and have her trying to figure something out and actually let us know what it is. I thought this could have been a little bit better. Regardless, because of its historical significance, I had to put it here at this position number 13 at a 4.5. And then coming in at position number 12 is Before I Hang. Now, this is another one that stars Boris Karloff, and I got turned on to this one because of the horror movie encyclopedia that I was working through. I saw it a few years ago, and I'm not going to lie, I wasn't the highest on it. Now, this one is another mad scientist film starring him where... 
find a way to slow down aging and I think even reverse it. But this becomes a weird type of Jekyll and Hyde type story where they use criminal's blood in the serum that he creates and then it ends up making him become you know, a violent killer at different times. Now, I will say his performance is pretty good here that when he starts to change, he will start to like wrap up his hands with uh, string or like rope or something like that, which is exactly what the killer, the blood that he used, that's exactly the same thing that would be done, you know, that way. Now he does get his sentence commuted, I believe, and then gets out and then starts to kill off other people as he wants to have his friends kind of undergo this experiment as well. For whatever reason, though, this movie just doesn't sit all that well with me. I think it's a little bit better than the first time I had watched it. I can respect his performance, which is really good. It's just one of those things where I'm just not the biggest fan of the movie. And this movie does have a pretty good cast with people like Evelyn Keyes and Edward Van Sloan, uh, Ben Tagger, and Pedro D. Corboba. These are all people that I've seen in other films from you know this year and this era together. I mean, it's one of those things where a lot of these actors were working a whole lot at this time. This movie, though, like I said, is better than the previous two that I just said, and this is actually the first one that is over that five mark for me. It's just not that great to me, but, I mean, it's still an interesting enough watch if you especially want to kind of see some of those earlier ones. I don't think this is one of the major studios or anything like that, but I end up coming in here with a 5.5 on this movie. And then the last movie that I'll talk about in this little section is going to be 1 Million B.C., now, this one I found to be interesting because, I mean, it's historically inaccurate, but I believe possibly at the time this movie might have been correct with some of the thoughts that they have because, I mean, and this movie really isn't a horror movie in my eyes, but, I mean, it does have some pretty creepy elements. We do get some giant monster-type things, but, I mean, this is, you know, a tale of prehistoric survival for the most part, and we get to really see kind of different people interacting where we have a tribe that is much more animal-like as opposed to this other tribe that is starting to show the early signs of civilization. I do give credit to this movie, though, that we do have Lon Chaney Jr. as the leader of the warrior tribe. And we get to see him be, you know, pretty crappy to his son. And then his son, you know, has issues acclimating to this other tribe. We do get some dinosaurs in this movie, which... I didn't think it was all that bad looking. I mean, it's very early, like, stop motion, which I always have a soft spot in my heart for that. I mean, obviously, the historical inaccuracies are the dinosaurs being alive at the same time as men. But, I mean, like I said, this film is very light on the horror elements. This is partially why it's fallen outside of that top ten and coming in at that, you know, 11th position like that. I mean, it's still an entertaining enough watch. I mean, I've also seen the remake that came out in the 60s, which that one is much better with some of the things they do and everything like that. I do know this movie was kind of state-of-the-art and ahead of its time, and I think it might have even won something for its soundtrack, if memory serves. I'm just not the biggest fan. I respect what they did in this movie, and I mean, they do a pretty good job at bringing this stuff to life, but it's going to come in at this position here with a 6 out of 10. And what I'm going to go ahead and do is get you over to a musical break before I get over to that top 10 of 1940. Thank you. 
welcome back once again. And for to get into this top 10 here for 1940, the film that I have coming in at number 10 is The Invisible Woman. Now this one's a little bit difficult because at first I wasn't even going to rewatch it because I didn't even realize that it came out this year. And this technically isn't even listed as a horror film, which makes it a little bit difficult as well. But the reason that I'm going to go ahead and include it here is this does fall in the continuity with the Invisible Man series. So I feel like that in part does help it to kind of get into this. And it's kind of interesting though, and I kind of talk about this on the previous episode as this was a mini review on there, is that they decided to, for whatever reason, scale back some of the more horror elements, which kind of bums me out. You know, having a woman be invisible and to make this, you know, less of a comedy romance film than, you know, kind of adding those horror elements because I do kind of feel like it's a little bit misogynistic to think that she couldn't do anything worse than punishing her boss. But I will have to say, this film does have a good cast. I do like Virginia Bruce, as I feel like she is a pretty funny actress, and I think she's one of the more funny parts in this movie, along with John Barrymore as the professor who is behind the experiment. I could have done without John Howard, and Charlie Ruggles did have some funny stuff, but I mean, I do have to give credit to seeing um, Oscar Homoloka in this movie. So I would say that the cast is pretty good there, and and this coming out the same year as The Invisible Man Returns, I think the effects work really well in this one as well. So I would say just outside of that, this one is just more lacking things, which is making it fall to where it does here. I will say after the first viewing, I thought this one was much better than I had remembered, and my rating did come up on this one. So it does have, you know, perks there that the rewatchability here is good. I just don't think necessarily that the comedy works as well as I would like for this movie. So that is why my rating here on this one is coming in at a 6 out of 10. And then coming in at number 9, I have Chamber of Horrors from the United Kingdom. This movie actually has two different titles. Here in America, I think it's under Chamber of Horrors, but then in the original title for this was The Door with Seven Locks. Now, this is a movie that is based off of an Edgar Wallace novel, and it has actually kind of some interesting aspects to it, where I was really kind of intrigued about the mystery that they were building. Now, I do have some issues with the movie, though. I do think Leslie Banks, as well as Dr. Mineta, who for a while there we think he's a good guy but i do think this film plays its hand a little bit too early in revealing who is good and who is bad and i think it would have worked a little bit better to build that mystery out a little bit longer i did think lily palmer was quite quite attractive i don't really understand the character that romilly luge or of dick martin really is trying to do here because we get to see him as he is quitting the police force that day when she comes in and she would be the character of June Lansdow, and when he sees how attractive she is, he decides that he's going to help her out of the kindness of his heart. I mean, I do kind of find that to be a little bit pragmatic, especially looking at it from today's eyes. I can see that they wanted to play up a little bit of a romance angle here, which is kind of their explanation behind it, but it's not something that I necessarily enjoy because it just makes it seem like she's not as strong of a character. But we do get some interesting stuff, especially when we learn the past of Dr. Mineta that his family was part of the Spanish Inquisition. I do think that's kind of a cool element, and then there is the Chamber of Horrors is actually like a museum that he has on the grounds of the estate that... He has worked with, you know, and for, for most of his adult life. And, I mean, it's kind of cool that there's all these torture devices and everything like that. As that stuff kind of just interests me, and the Spanish Inquisition is another thing that really just kind of, you know, piques my interest as well. This film, though, does kind of get a little bit boring because of how quickly they play on some of these things, where 
this one it has a little bit more horror elements, which is why I had to put it right above, you know, the Invisible Woman. But this comes in at another six out of ten for me. And then coming in at number eight is the Mummy's Hand. Now this one was featured back episode number thirty-four. That was the shortened episode that I had to do when I went on a quick vacation. Now this is an interesting one. Is that it's actually a remake of the Mummy that came out during the decade before this they just decided to go ahead and just do a remake of it and it's kind of interesting is that there's actually a sequence in this that is you know showing things that happened in the past and that was taken right from that original movie and i think the old adage was why reshoot it when you already have it in the can which hard to argue with that type of you know thought process there i thought this movie was all right i didn't really love it though i mean dick foreign as steve banning was fine I was a little bit bummed out that they introduced Peggy Morin as Marta Slovani, but then for whatever reason, she kind of just fades into the background as a kind of secondary character there. We get Cecil Kellaway, who is a guy who I've seen in a few different movies from this era. I thought The Mummy being done by Tom Tyler was solid as he has a just an opposing type figure. My problem, though, is Andoheb, who is the villain here of George Succo, plays that role. I feel like they just kind of make him too maniacal and i don't mind the mummy going around killing people as he's trying to do what he has been cursed to do and protect his lover's tomb but the problem being here though is that when you have this guy of andoheb who is using him to kind of pick people off i kind of feel like that it makes it but we don't necessarily need that type of villain there to do it i do like the idea of him being a guardian where he is trying to hide where the tomb is and everything like that but this one, again, has more horror elements and some of the ones previous to this. So this is another one that is a 6 out of 10, but that's why it is going to be above the two previous ones, you know, just below it and everything like that. And then coming in at number 7 is Black Friday. This was a mini review on episode number 38. As I saw this one when it was part of the horror movie encyclopedia that I'm working for a few years ago, and I hadn't seen it since, but I wasn't the highest on it after that first viewing. Now, this is an interesting one because this is written by Kurt Sadamak, who would do a lot of these Universal-type movies in the era. And this is another film that stars Boris Karloff, where he plays a mad doctor of Dr. Sobak. But I like that he doesn't start out that way, is that he ends up trying to help his friend and uses his experimental surgery to keep him alive. But it ends up having disastrous consequences as it is in the body of his friend who is a professor but he's using the brain of a gangster and it kind of gives you know a split personality almost Jekyll and Hyde type feel to this movie this one also features Bella Lugosi which I think this is the first time I brought his name up on this list here this is just an interesting type film though for me because it is a combination of having a gangster film with a mad scientist type thing and then you know you're also kind of mixing in a little bit of the Jekyll and Hyde type story as I've said and I do like how we get this doctor when he kind of changes over to being the gangster part of him wants to get his revenge and then he ends up though kind of realizing that he needs to kind of have some sort of a low profile if he wants to split the money with Dr. Sobek. My problem with this movie though is I don't feel like we ever get a true baseline of him being a good doctor. I think it's a good idea what he's trying to do in saving his friend. But then the moment he does this experimental surgery and see that it works, he starts to wonder if he can figure out the money that this gangster, who I think his name was Red Cannon in it, if he can figure out where that money is. I just kind of wish we would have had more of, like I said, that baseline of his goodness before making that change for it. 
There's really only a few good characters in this movie, though, where I don't feel like there's sort of any, any sort of bad side to them. So that's also kind of an interesting little thing here. Like I said, this movie isn't great, but I do feel that this is the best of all these ones that are here tied at a 6 out of 10, which is the same rating that I gave to this movie as well. But the movies on the list above this, though, have a different score, finally. And then coming in at number 6, missing out on that top 5 distinction, is The Drums of Fu Manchu. Now, this movie was a featured review on episode number 36. This is kind of carrying on with an ongoing story here of the nefarious Dr. Fu Manchu, which I guess was a character in books that were written by Sax Romer. Now, I do like this to an extent. I don't necessarily feel like this is truly horror, though, because the whole thing about this is that he is a man who is of Asian descent. He believes in the ways of the past, but he's also a modern man, so it's an interesting kind of meshing of this into, you know, one individual that is trying to have world domination. Now, in this, he's trying to get a scepter that belonged to Genghis Khan in order to fulfill a prophecy that whoever gets this scepter will become the leader of all the Asian people and try to take over the world. Now, this film does have some built-in racism in it that I'm not the biggest fan of. We have Henry Brandon, who is playing the character of Fu Manchu. It is kind of hard to judge a movie that's 80 years old because... There probably wasn't a lot of Asian actors that they could cast in this role. I'm just not the biggest fan of it, and I can see how it would make people hate, you know, people of this descent, and not even necessarily those that are even necessarily the ethnic background of him, because I believe he's supposed to be Chinese. But like I said, this is an ongoing serial type thing. It gets a little bit repetitive if you try to watch it all in one sitting because of that, where this was shown over like a period of time where each, you know, different segment of it would have been shown i believe it's either a weekly type thing but i'm not 100 positive on that but i did enjoy this one since the horror elements were a little bit lighter in this i had to come in with a 6.5 out of 10 here and then to start off that top five it'll be you'll find out and i don't mean that as a joke and was featured on episode number 33 this is the movie that was directed by david butler now this is one that i thought was kind of interesting here is that it seems like a cash grab that I believe it's RKO was trying to do here where Kay Kaiser, I believe, was a band leader. I think he also had a weekly or had some sort of musical show that was Kay Kaiser's College of Musical Knowledge. And we get to see that in the beginning of this as there's kind of like a game show here. But this is an interesting film where they're mixing that where there's some musical numbers that his band does. But we also have some horror legends in this movie where... Peter Laurie shows up as a detective. We have Boris Karloff yet again in this movie where he is a friend of the family because this takes place in a spooky mansion where it seems like somebody is trying to kill this heiress who they're throwing this birthday party for. Now, he is a like a professor that is a longtime family friend and knows the aunt who is in control of the estate. We also have Bella Lugosi here who is supposedly like a charlatan type he was supposed to, I think, in this movie, be somebody who is of, like, Middle Eastern descent and is, like, a fortune teller and he's able to conjure up dead relatives and things like that. This is definitely a movie, though, that I think they kind of sometimes lean too much into the musical elements, which I'll say some of these musical numbers are pretty fun and interesting. Like, 
this one does have some good comedy to go along with that. I like most of the acting here across the board. Like, it's fun to see these horror legends, you know, kind of teaming up for this movie. Like I said, though, it's just more of a cash grab and not great. This is another one, though, that's plagued by where it plays its hand a little too early instead of letting the mystery build just a little bit longer, which does bum me out a little bit and hurt the score. I do think this is a little bit more horror with some of the stuff that we get here and some of the actors in it than the drums of Fu Manchu, which is why it does make the top five here as I came in with another 6.5 out of 10 with the slight nod going to those reasons there. And then at number four is going to be the last appearance of Bella Lugosi in The Devil Bat. And this movie is featured on episode number 26. This is yet another mad scientist type film, which I think this one does have some pretty interesting elements to it. As I was saying, Bella Lugosi stars in this movie as Dr. Paul Carruthers, who's pretty upset that he, with a couple other guys, had created a company where they were making aftershave lotion, I believe, or they're making something, and he decided to get his money up front while they decided to kind of wait for more of the back end. And he comes up with an idea where using this new aftershave lotion that he has created and making these gigantic bats, he can use them to hunt people down and kill them. I thought this was kind of an interesting little story and concept here to play with. It's almost, you know, I mean, it is pretty mean-spirited. And I like that this feels like it's starting the transition between, you know, the universal monsters, like the classic type things of the years past. And then what happens in the 50s where we kind of get more to the, you know, sci-fi type stuff. And I like that this one also uses, like, newspapers and things like that to kind of tell the story and whatnot. Now, not all the effects work great in this movie. Some of them do kind of look a little bit cheesy. I don't mind that, though, because at least they tried to go practical and they're working with what they can. The bats do look a little bit primitive and it is hard to kind of see and they really don't have a lot of the attacks on screen because they couldn't really do a whole lot there i do like that we kind of introduce a little bit of something that's very relevant now where there's a little bit of the fake news type thing happening where the two guys that are trying to get to the bottom of this is a newspaper man with his photographer and they are trying to stage some things in order to keep the investigation going so they do have some good heart in what they're trying to do but the problem is that it does affect the investigation slightly with them you know kind of lying about the evidence that they have so it's kind of interesting to see that play out this one though is another one that's tied at the 6.5 this one has more horror elements than the ones previous to it and this one is less of a comedy as well so that's why i put that here and where it falls on this list at this position and then at number three i have dr cyclops this was featured on episode number 29 and this is yet again another film that is a mad scientist type one where we have we have Albert Decker portraying Dr. Thorkel, where he is working in the Amazon jungle, and we end up learning later on that he has come upon a discovery of, I believe, like uranium, and he is using this to try and experiment with some things where he's able to miniaturize. And what he ends up doing is gets a bunch of scientists and experts and whatnot out into the middle of nowhere of this jungle where he needs them literally just to read him some figures that he has done and just kind of figure out if his experiment has worked and then once he does that he pretty much tells them that they can go on their way and that he doesn't need their help anymore now this upsets them because obviously they've come all this way into the amazon jungle and they refuse to leave now when they refuse to leave his experiment he decides to miniaturize them and it becomes an interesting thing is that i feel like we're slightly playing with the 
Odyssey myth here in that these people came all this way on this journey and now that they're there They've been miniaturized and I know in that they have to deal with a Cyclops in that myth And this is actually a really cool thing is that the scientist of dr Thorkel's eyesight is so bad that that's why they had to come down there to help him out and they end up doing something where they break his glasses and he pretty much, I think, only has one lens. So it's kind of a cool thing they're playing with. And then we get some of the horror elements while they're trying to escape from him is that they have some animals and stuff that are much larger than them and it makes it much more dangerous. Now this one, though, does have a little bit of a cliched ending where there's a woman that falls in love with a guy because, you know, she has to because it's the 40s. But on top of that... They also have just a weak explanation to what happens in the end, which is why it doesn't rank higher on this list, but I still really enjoyed this movie. I thought it was kind of a fun one that I've seen and heard about, but never got around to seeing. So my rating on this movie was a 7 out of 10, you know, breaking that 6.5 range finally on this movie. And then coming in as the runner-up at number two is going to be The Ghost Breakers. This was on episode number 31, where that one was a featured review. This is an interesting one because it's based off a play written by Paul Dickey, and it stars the great Bob Hope, who, as a Ohio State fan, I know him very well because he is one of the few people who has dotted the I for Script Ohio, and they know it's a pretty legendary thing to do for somebody who is not actually in the band. And this is also an interesting one because this one got greenlit because of him and Paulette Goddard had played in The Cat and the Canary together, I believe in 1939, so this one got greenlit almost immediately and it has a radio broadcaster who is bob hope in this movie and he is has the name of larry lawrence where they he is going down to cuba when he accidentally gets locked away in an heiress is luggage who that is paulette goddard as mary carter now this one though we don't really know who we can trust in this movie there's a few different people telling her to kind of sell off this property that she has and she is refusing to do so so then what ends up happening though is that she's not going to be you know manhandled out of it and decides to still go down there we also get to have some other people in this movie like i brought up previously is we have corboba back in this one we have uh virginia brissack who i recently talked about her in a movie there's noble johnson anthony quinrall in this movie as well we also have willie best and i want to bring him up because there's a little bit of a racist part in this movie where it was built in like i've said before into like the 40s so it's kind of hard to come down on it it is bother me though trying to watch this you know in 2020 willie best is just playing a character of somebody which i mean i'm glad that he was getting work and got to play you know the actual race of the character that you know he is actually because he is a black person and we also have noble johnson who i know i've brought up him i've seen him in other things as well where he was playing the zombie in this movie, which is good to see that they both got cast in this movie. But that's why this movie comes in here, is there's just some elements that don't necessarily work for me. Not all the comedy does. Some of it did make me chuckle at different times, but I came in with a 7.5 out of 10 on this movie. And now to my final movie here. The number one movie on this list for me for 1940 is The Invisible Man Returns. Now this was a mini review back on episode number 26. This was a movie that I had seen when I was working my way through the universal kind of classic movies back when I finally got a hold of all of them. It's kind of the same reason I watched The Invisible Woman. And I was quite intrigued to check this one out again because I really liked the original Invisible Man. It's one of my favorite from those universal run. And so I 
didn't wasn't as high on this one that first viewing so i was kind of seeing where this one would land for me with a second viewing and i have to say clearly it has held up i think this is an interesting one because this is one of the more early films from vincent price and we really don't get to see a whole lot of it he's the one that goes invisible and then kind of you know goes mad as he is that way and i just like this whole concept of when you have somebody, even if they're a good person, that when they go invisible, that they can, you know, kind of lose their mind and become a villain. This one is another one that Kurt Sadamak had wrote. This one also has some other people that I recognize, like Cedric Hardwick is in this movie. I believe he might have been knighted, actually. And then we have Nan Gray is the lady in this movie. There's also Cecil Kellaway is in this one as well, making another appearance in this movie. This one, though, I think also does a little bit better is that the technology has gotten advanced from when they made the original movie so they were able to do a little bit more in my opinion and it does look good and vincent price just has a great voice so even as young as he is here where he just sounds so maniacal in the things that he is doing and trying to get his revenge because i believe that he has a mining company and is trying to be taken away from him he was in prison because he was accused of you know committing a crime so there are some aspects of it that don't necessarily work, which is why I don't give this a perfect score when I finally drop my rating for this movie. It is very entertaining, though, and I think it is a worthy successor to the original one. Don't think it's better by any stretch, but, you know, that's just kind of where I'm at with this movie. So I end up coming in that the number one movie is only an 8 out of 10 from 1940. There's all a somewhat of flaws with them, so I can't necessarily go, you know, to that perfect score with anything here. But I want to thank you for coming on this little thing here with me. What I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is kick you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. Yippee, there'll be no wedding bells for today. Because I got spurs that jingle, jangle, jingle. Jingle, jangle. As I go riding merrily along Jingle, jangle And they sing, oh, ain't you glad you're single Jingle, jangle And that song ain't so very far from wrong Jingle, jangle Oh, Lily Bell Oh, Lily Bell Oh, Lily Bell Oh, Lily Bell Though I may have done some fooling This is why I never fell Cause I got spurs That jingle, jangle, jingle as I go right merrily along, jingle, jangle. they sing, oh, ain't you glad you're single, jingle, and that song ain't so very far from wrong. Jingle, jangle, jingle. As I go riding merrily, as I go riding merrily, oh, 
Welcome back, and I want to thank you for coming on this journey with me here in episode number 40 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. Now, as I was saying something a little bit earlier is I'm curious as to what your thoughts were on the movies on this list and if you've seen any of them or what order would you put them in. If you could give me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. I'd like to hear your thoughts. You might not have seen all of them, but any of the ones that you have seen, if you could shoot me an email, I'll read them on the next episode that once I get it and I can, you know, have time to, you know, read through everything and record it, I will definitely put it on there just so as a way to kind of see if I can get a little bit more of interaction with some of my listeners out there. If you'd like to read any of the written reviews of anything on this episode or any of the past episodes, that's Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. On Facebook, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, Buckeye from Mish. Letterbox, it's David OSU. Instagram, it's David OSU87. And if you want to download the FlickChat app on iOS or Android, you can do so. And my join code to get in on the topics over there is Journey with a Cinephile, all one word. And the last thing I would ask you is that if you could go ahead and subscribe so you never miss any of the episodes once they drop. And if you could do a rate and review of this podcast just so I can get an idea of what I'm doing that you do like and what I'm doing that you don't like. And then also something else is that I've been recently interviewed on two different kind of shows. The one of them is Bobby Talks dot 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 where one of my good friends from high school, Robert Gifford, interviewed me on there, and I do believe it's up on YouTube. I'm not necessarily sure where everything else that he posts that on, but I do know it is available through that venue. And you can find him on Instagram, as well as I believe on Facebook under Bobby Talks with three dots. And like I said, you'll get to see me on one of the most recent episodes on there. And then the other one would be over on Sledgehammer Horror on YouTube. Kenny is one of my other good friends from high school that he also interviewed me on that for my first horror movie. If you could definitely go ahead and give that a you know listen, check him out, watch that, and subscribe to him as well. That would be greatly appreciated. Other than that... I know I'm going to get back into doing another Journey Through the Aughts episode for the next one. And I do believe it's going to be, I've already watched the first movie, which is from 2020, is going to be Host, that I saw on Shudder. And then the other one, I believe, is a Japanese film called Jigoku. I might be mispronouncing that. I do apologize. But that is the other movie I believe I'm going to go ahead and watch for that. So keep an eye out for that one for next week. But I want to say, whatever you do today, I hope you're safe in doing it. And this is David Garrett Jr., your tour guide, signing off.